0: Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Uh, (laughs) That's a weird passage in the Bible, huh? And maybe you're here like Christmas, huh? All right. Well, we'll get to it in just a second. Don't worry. It's, I would argue, one of the weirdest passages in the Bible, and we'll talk about it here in a second. Uh, My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, I'm just real happy to be here this morning. Uh, because we can go to the bathroom over there now. Um, and so, it, man, what a long haul it's been. I feel like I want to give like a Grammy Award speech or something, uh, but I'm worried that Bobby will start playing the music and shuttle me out, uh, cut me off here. Um, but just a, a couple of quick things that I, I just, whatever. I have a microphone, so I'm going to talk here for a second. Um, so for, for the staff, we have been talking, dreaming, planning, to open up this space for almost five years now, and the ways that everything, from like aesthetically how it's come together to the finances, uh, it's just evidence of God's grace to us uh, that God cares about us and that He pays attention. And uh, I don't, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like y'all don't see all the things that um, the rest of the staff is doing. Like some of them were up here last night at 8 o'clock at night. Uh, They were here this morning trying to get it as ready as it could be for you guys. And the ways that they've been scheming to try to save every penny and make it beautiful and make this a space where people can experience what life with God is like uh, has just left me overwhelmed with gratitude for them. But then how members have come in and done Everything from paint on the walls uh, to building pieces of furniture, uh, the way this has really been a church effort, and um, maybe most of all, the ways that uh, we as a family, I mean, two years ago, we, didn't make, we couldn't make budget, and then we raised $300,000 in cash uh, to, to pay for all this, and so, yeah, thanks. Um, so you know, you know if you had a part in this. Um, I'm going to be This is probably I, I, something I shouldn't say, but we had um, about four families make up almost $180,000 of that, uh, just feeling stirred by the Lord. And uh, so we're, we're grateful for his provision in that. And then um, I hope they're, they're in the room. There's two guys that are coming at some point today that we don't see a lot. Uh, there's a whole team of folks that are in Louisville that are, are working day in and day out to make Sojourn, this place here in New Albany, the best church that we can be. Um, and it's Brad House and Luke Barker. Are you guys in? Brad's here. Brad, will you two stand up for a second? Because we never see your faces. Just stand up for a second. Uh, yeah. So, okay, you ugly, sit down. Uh, <laughs> so these these guys do everything from, like, make sure I don't go to jail uh, <laughs> to make sure that, like, our accounting is above board. Um, and these guys, like, for generations, we will feel their impact for what they've done on this. They've done everything from help us figure out how are we going to pay for the architects' fees as the project got bigger and ballooned. And, and uh, I could talk for a long time, but I'm, I'm going to try to hold off crying till the end of the sermon. Um, but these guys have saved us somewhere in the neighborhood of fifty or sixty thousand dollars in this project. Uh, And you guys, like, we don't see their faces, we don't see their heart and the long hours they're pulling to work to pull this off for us. And so I'm really, thank God for you guys and for your hard work that um, probably doesn't get noticed as much as it should. So we're grateful for you guys. Thanks. Uh, Yeah, and then a a couple other real quick things, I promise. Um, We got these bulletins happening here. Check out the back. Uh, Christmas caroling is coming up. And I know you think you can't sing. Uh, but you can sing a Christmas carol. Uh, and we sing three Christmas songs to folks in the neighborhood. And like we get emails, uh, usually around September, October, people saying, hey, I've got family coming in town. When are you guys Christmas caroling again? Uh, what a blessing this has been to our neighborhood. Uh, so we'll come here, we'll, we'll drink hot chocolate, and then we'll go invade the neighborhood with uh, singing. And it's amazing what a difference it makes here in this little neighborhood. So I invite you to hop on with that. Um, there's an invite to come join the revival over at Sojourn Kids. So if you wanna serve over there and see what it'll do in your own heart and uh, see what God's doing over there, you can sign up that way. And then uh, last, right after the service, we're gonna have just a quick five minute member meeting. Um, There's a member meeting happening on Wednesday and there's some information we wanna give you guys to help you get ready for that member meeting. So if you're a member, Just hang around for five minutes and it'll it'll be real quick. And if you're not a member, try to go enjoy the new lobby space. And uh, if you see stuff that's like, it doesn't seem like that's ready yet. You're right, it's not ready yet. So come back next week and it'll be 99% done. We're about 94% done right now. So, all right. Okay? So back to this weird passage in the Bible that I've been avoiding. Um, As we were, uh, the preachers were talking about planning, what do we do during Advent, Uh, we spent some time in the genealogies of Jesus. And genealogies, it's kind of like the book of Numbers where you're like, just get me through this, right? Like the book of Numbers is where Bible reading plans go to die. And (laughs) most of us get to the genealogies of Jesus and it's just like skip, 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 skip. Uh, But in Matthew chapter one, there's these people in there where it's almost like Matthew looked scoured his Old Testament for everyone that was related to Jesus and said, who could I find that seems like they don't belong? Um, Most of us, when we think of our family tree or or our genealogies, uh, we share them to try to prove something, like how long my family's been in the United States, or we're ninth generation New Albany. You know, it's this kind of source of pride or something like that. And then there's, uh, there's these figures in the lineage of Jesus, the family tree of Jesus, that, boy, they just stick out. Um, there's, there's women in there, which is very unusual for when these were written, uh, especially if you're trying to write the family tree of a king. And then there's all kinds of amazing model of righteousness women in the Old Testament. Uh, but the family tree of Jesus has hookers and not necessarily the people we look at, and it would be like, man, I hope they come to Thanksgiving this year, or boy, am I really excited to see them. Uh, so Jesus has this very strange family, uh, and, and I think this is a time of year, Christmas, Advent, uh, we're just on the uh, aftermath of Thanksgiving. Maybe some of you have finally recovered from being with your in-laws or being with your own family, uh, and this is a time of year where... Uh, We think about family a lot, and and I think there's few things that arouse emotion in us or affect us the way family does, either what they were or what they weren't, what you'd hope they would be. Uh, And so we want to spend some time between now and Christmas thinking about Jesus's family tree. Uh, And if you want to go read it, it's in Matthew chapter one, and and you can see these ladies uh, that it's as if Matthew slows down to make sure you're really clear that these women are included in it. Uh, So if you know me, um, I've been thinking a lot about my family the last couple of years, and uh, there's amazing ways God's been showing up to me as I look back and try to understand my family or my wife's family. And uh, if you know me personally, um, you know I have a a mild obsession with cars. Uh, I think about cars all the time, and I put a lot of uh, my hope in cars, and if I had a cooler car or an older car or, or whatever, and I don't know why. I have this, I don't know where it came from, but it's been there as long as I can remember. And uh, I've got really good parents too, by the way. So at 15 or 16, when I was begging them for these like obnoxious, kind of like MTV Cribs cars, they were like, you're 16, (laughs) stop it. Uh, But I had a friend whose dad shared my obsession and they, I think they were a family of five and they had like 20 cars and all of them were cool and unusual, and his kids were driving crazy cars. And I can remember when my parents would be like, no, we're not going to go buy you that. Uh, I can remember being all angry in bed, being like, I wish I was in that family. You know, like, if I was in that family, I would have such a cool car. Um, right? Like, that was my hope. I, I, if I was in that family, I would, I would have a much cooler car. Um, and around that time, so this is like my middle high school years, uh, a friend of mine his family kind of exploded. Uh, he had a real messy situation at home and he came to live with us for a few months, uh, which caused a lot of drama. And I can remember being driving around in uh, the car one night with him and he just starts crying and he looks at me and he says, I wish I was in your family. Um, for me, you know, like the family I longed for had to do with cars, which is kind of <laughs> pathetic, I admit. Um, and for my, my friend, You know, he saw parents that were married, that that loved their kids, that our home was warm and welcoming, um, and that was the kind of family that he wished he was a part of. And all this got me thinking, as I've reflected, um, the big lesson I learned, especially that night with my friend, is that you don't get to choose your family. We don't get a vote in who our family is. Uh, We don't get a say in what they're good at and what their failures are, um, who they were or who they weren't. Um, You know, maybe you're reminded of that at Thanksgiving. You know, Uncle Larry poured gravy on his cranberries or something like that. And you're just like, what in the world? I wish this guy wasn't here. You don't get a vote on who your family is. And I think all of us at some point look at our families uh, or maybe we look at someone else's family who we think has it better, or whose drama is better than our drama, and we look at them and say, I wish I was in that family. But that's just not how it works, right? We don't get to choose. So that reality that every human being deals with is part of what makes the genealogies of Jesus so fascinating, uh, the family tree so interesting. Because unlike every other human in history, Jesus actually chose his family. It was God's plan. His birth fulfilled thousands of years of prophecy, and God handpicked the people that would be in his family. Whereas most of us, and it could be pathetic or really profound, most of us have a fantasy about some idealistic family, whatever we think the perfect family would be, Uh, The God of the universe chooses intentionally a dysfunctional family with people that most of us would be embarrassed to be associated with. And so for the next several weeks, we want to look at these oddities, the dysfunctional people in the family of Jesus. These people surrounded, these women in particular, that are broken, surrounded by drama, and try to consider... That it's no coincidence that they're part of Jesus' family. Because at its core, the family tree of Jesus gives us an incredible insight into who God is and what He's up to. Um, If if you're willing to stomach reading a genealogy, uh, it provides you incredible insight into who God is and what He's up to. And so today, uh, we begin with the first woman mentioned in Jesus's family tree from Matthew chapter one, this woman named Tamar. Who's Tamar? This weird story in Genesis 38. If you read the book of Genesis, this story feels, I would say, mildly out of place. Uh, it doesn't necessarily really further the story of the book of Genesis or, or the narrative. Um, and it's one of these chapters that blows up the notion that the Bible is filled with these good moral lessons, you know, or it's these good, honorable people that we can look to and get a cute lesson about what it is. And it's funny reading people write about books of the Bible for a living, and this makes them so uncomfortable because they're just scrapping to find what is the moral lesson that we're to take away from this. Um, this story is gritty, messy, and uncomfortable. Uh, but it gives us incredible insight into who God is and what he's up to. Uh, Tamar's story is wrapped up in this really significant Bible figure uh, His story, it's a man named Judah who's a grandson of Abraham who was a big deal in the Bible, uh, also messed up, uh, pawned his wife off as a sister a couple times. You may know that story. Um, So Judah is meant to be part of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that you will be the father of the nations, that you will have more ancestors, descendants rather uh, than stars in the sky. Uh, And the story begins with Judah marrying some Canaanite woman. And this is, all, this is all we get about her. Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. So Shua is the name of the dad, right? And I think it's, <laughs> I think it's interesting that we get more information about the wedding night than we get about his spouse. I just want you to notice that. You get more information about what happened the night of the wedding than you get about the woman that he married. What does that tell you about Judah? Just tuck that in your back pocket for a second. Uh, They have some kids, and Tamar is forced to marry the firstborn, this guy named Ur. (laughs) How'd that naming go? What should we name him? (laughs) Ur. So whatever. Um, So in that day, a girl would get married right around puberty. Uh, So let's say Tamar is 12, 13, 14 somewhere. there, She's a young girl. She has no say in what happens here. Um, and in, in that culture, you know, a woman couldn't just go to education. Like for us, kind of the hallmark of Successful living, I feel like, is, well, where did you go to school? And do you have a good job? And, like, none of those options were available to a woman back then. So for a woman to get security, to have any kind of place or voice in society, you had to get married and have children. And whoever you married, that man and his dad would ultimately be responsible for you. They were meant to protect you, provide for you, keep you safe. It secured your place in society. So by marrying his son... Tamar was ultimately the responsibility of Judah. That's really important to understand. Uh, Judah's role was to take care of Tamar, make sure she was safe, uh, make sure she was honored and provided for. Uh, But we found out that his son Ur was a bad man and God killed him. So the way it worked back then is if a woman's husband died, it was the responsibility of the family to take care of her. So one of the brothers would marry her so that she would be taken care of and provided for. She was part of the family. She would have children. She would have a voice. So Judah gives his other son, Onan, to Tamar. And uh, I don't really want to say more about it than that because it's embarrassing. You can read what happens in the Bible. Essentially, Onan provides this or practices this primitive form of birth control, uh, which is one way that he's denying. Uh, Tamar, her place in society. Uh, I don't want to say more than that because I'll blush, so go read about it. Uh, so he, you see that uh, Onan is refusing to do what he's supposed to do to take care of Tamar. Uh, so again, Tamar is used, and Onan is killed again by God. So Tamar is a double widow who's probably in her mid to late teens at this point. And Judah then promises that his third son will marry her. He was a young boy, so he says, once he comes of age, once he's ready, then he'll marry you. Um, now, I want to think about Judah here for a minute and who this guy is. First, um, by marrying a Canaanite, we see that he doesn't have much regard for the law, or for God's rules. Um, he did something he wasn't supposed to do. By not even mentioning her name, his wife's name, like he talks about sleeping with her, but not even her name. What does that say about what Judah thinks about women and what they're for? Like, he's not a guy that thought very highly of women. Um, by lying to Tamar, it's interesting. He says uh, he's basically scared that if his son marries Tamar, his third son marries Tamar, that he'll die too. And so the problem isn't my sons and their sin or our dysfunctional family and the way we relate to women. It's this teenage girl, right? It's Tamar's fault that these boys are dying. And so he says, I'll give you my son, but he delays it and delays it and delays it. And our best guess is it was probably 20 years that he made Tamar live in this kind of limbo of being voiceless, powerless, insecure in society. So we see that, Judah has very little concern for the law. He has very little concern for women. And by the way, he treats Tamar, he has very little concern for justice. He doesn't follow through with his responsibilities. He fails his family and Tamar in particular. So at this point in the story, you got to see Tamar as this girl that nobody wanted, she was damaged goods. She's probably 15 or 16 by the time Onan dies. She has no family. She has no children. She's twice widowed. And her father, her protector, her defender totally hangs her out to dry. You imagine the gossip surrounding her? Don't marry that girl. You'll get killed. Like, who wants to marry that girl? She's been married twice. And look at all the weirdness in her family. She has no voice, no power, no hope. And in that society, she's in one of the most precarious situations you could imagine. So after maybe roughly 20 years of living in this tension and waiting, she takes matters into her own hands. She dresses herself as a prostitute and stands by a road where she knows Judah's going to walk by. Again, what does this say about Judah and his reputation in the family? You know, if she If she's going to pull off this scheme, there has to be some sense that Judah does what he wants when he wants with a woman. So she dresses up and she's right. Judah comes and sleeps with her. (laughs) So if you thought you had a weird Thanksgiving, try to imagine this, right? Like she seduces her father-in-law. How desperate do you have to be? She makes Judah give her his family seal as a down payment. It's kind of like, leaving your wallet with your credit cards and social security cards uh, so that it's kind of a down payment so that she'll get paid later. But as soon as he's gone, she takes off her prostitute clothes and puts back her mourning clothes. She had to wear mourning clothes for decades to signify to everybody that I'm a twice widow. Judah goes back to try to pay and everyone's like, no, there's, there's no prostitutes over here. I, I don't know what you're talking about. So out of fear, out of shame, uh, Judah just pretends like nothing ever happened. A few months later, word gets out that Tamar is pregnant and Judah flips out. He says, bring her out and have her burned to death. And Judah can't see the hypocrisy here. He, he can't uh, see you know, this tension. I do what I want, but this girl I'm supposed to be protecting that is vulnerable and desperate that I've taken advantage of for 20 years. She's gotta be killed for doing the thing that I do all the time. No one is concerned with Tamar's well-being. She's the girl that nobody wanted. But this is the trap that Tamar had planned. And she springs it perfectly. As she was being brought out, being brought out to be burned to death, she sent a message to her father-in-law, Judah. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said, See if you recognize who seal and cord and staff these are. I mean, it's just like, gotcha, sucker. <laughs> Obviously, these are Judas, And he's not worried about her. He's worried about his reputation. And the rest of the story ends in similarly a bizarre fashion. She's, she has twins. One of them tries to get out. The other one comes out instead First. And then that's it, Like, right? There's no uh, real clean resolution. You can say, well, well, she had children, and so that's a blessing now. Um, yeah, children are a blessing, and God brings good things out of tragedies and drama. Um, I wonder what those kids were treated like. like I wonder how Tamar was looked at when everyone knew whose kids those were. Uh, There's no apologies, really. There's no grand restoration between Judah and Tamar. So when you think of Jesus' ancestors, the people in the family of Jesus, is this the kind of person that you would imagine? Is this who you would expect for Matthew in his gospel to slow down and say, oh yeah, remember Perez? His mom was Tamar. What does it say about who God is and what he's up to, that he chose to be in a family with someone like Tamar? Why did God choose her? What do we learn from this? Well, first, we learn that God has long-term plans. Um, Tamar's story is filled with waiting. 20 years between Onan's death and sleeping with Judah. This this season of the year that we call Advent is a time where we try to slow down and feel the apparent slowness of God. It's a time that nature slows down. The trees go to sleep. The birds go away. Maybe we'll get snow, and the driving will slow down. Advent is a time of waiting and hoping. After God's final promise of Messiah, who would come and make all things new again to Malachi, there were 400 years of silence. The the story of Tamar tells us that God never forgets, He just has long term plans. God has not forgotten when He's silent, and no one's story ends unresolved. So if there's a lack of resolution in your life, it doesn't mean God's forgotten. If there's longing and pain, it doesn't mean God's forgotten. It means your story's not over yet. We can sit in the slowness of Advent. We can face all that our family is and is not, or was and was not. We can face all of that, bringing our cares to God, trusting that he's there. Even when it seems like he's as silent as the trees on a... Fresh winter morning. God has long term plans. Second, God loves the unlovable. This is perhaps the, the clearest message in the story of Tamar. No one is forgotten, no one is too far gone, no one is edited out of God's story because of their shame, their sin, or their disgrace. I'm going to say that again because no one in this room believes that. No one is edited out of God's story because of their shame, their sin, or disgrace. A few years ago, Pastor Bobby wrote a song with a line in it that just crushes me every time we sing it. So from the song, Lead Us Back, we sing, we pray for those we'd like to know. Favor sings a siren tune. And here's what this this line is saying. We want to be popular. We want to be famous. Or at the very least, we want to know popular people and know famous people. So who do we pray for? We pray for the people that we wish we were friends with. We pray for the people we'd like to know. We want to be close to the people that will make us look good and be impressive. Why do we get so excited when it turns out a celebrity is a Christian? Have you ever thought about that? Tony Romo's a Christian and he's on TV and oh my gosh, if Tony Romo was here, I could talk to him about Jesus and we'd probably become friends and then everyone would know, I'm friends with Tony Romo. We want the family with cool cars and the big house and the nice vacations. But then we look at the life of Jesus and it, it brings new meaning to the reality that he was called a friend of sinners. You realize that he was ridiculed because of how much time he spent with hookers? You realize he was dismissed because of how much time he spent at bars and at parties? God loves the people we see as unlovable. God is present at the margins of society. He looks to the betrayed, the discarded, the damaged goods, and he says to them, I want you and my family. Advent is a time to reject your suspicion that you cannot be loved. It's a time to lay down your fear that you're too far gone. Because no one cares about injustice more than God. The betrayals Tamar experienced, no one was more concerned about that than God. No one cares about the oppressed more than he does. No one cares about the forgotten, the people who feel like they're too far gone. To put it real simply, no one cares for you more than Jesus. The story of Tamar tells us that no one is too far gone. No one is edited out of God's story. He loves the unlovable. And finally, The story of Tamar tells us that Jesus redeems our stories. In in Jesus, Tamar is no longer the girl nobody wanted. She's the woman that God needed. She's not remembered as a double widow who seduced her father-in-law. That's not what she's remembered for. She's remembered as the first woman named in the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus. In other words, if you remove Tamar and all her sin and all of her drama, you lose Jesus. If you lose Tamar, you lose Jesus. And maybe you get all tripped up because I said that word need. And you say, well, God could have done anything he wanted. Could God have done it another way? Absolutely. He could have had this real nice, pretty, beautiful family tree, but he chose not to. He chose this woman. And so if you lose her, you lose Jesus. Advent provokes us to become aware of our longing for redemption, our longing for resolution and for our stories to have meaning and to make sense and for grace to get the last word in our lives. Christmas is not about hiding from our lives with fantasies of what could be we hang paintings of these idyllic Christmas scenes, or, or we watch these movies where everything is nice and neat and makes perfect sense, and we, we escape the reality of what we have to face with these fantasies of what could be. Christmas is where we can face all of our longings in Christ, knowing what will be. I don't know the details of how your story ends or what you've lived, but I know that in Jesus, all of us will find redemption. Like Tamar, he takes the brokenness in our lives and transforms it into evidence of grace. So when we look at her life, we don't say what a wreck she is, we say how beautiful God is. He looks at Tamar and he says, I want to be part of your family and he does the same to each of us. At Advent, we remember that God comes near to us. He doesn't sit back as a disappointed, critical father. He moves into the neighborhood and makes us his family. If, if you want to know what, you'll, what he'll do with your story, look first at the cross, because there you see that he enters into your suffering. He draws near to it. He's acquainted with grief and despair and pain and suffering. And there at the cross, he takes your place. If you want to know how your story ends, look to his resurrection. Where maybe you thought there was death or shame or defeat, he will bring life and healing and victory. I don't know how. I don't know when, but after every crucifixion comes a resurrection. That is the pattern of the Bible, and that is how your story will go. People thought they won, the demons thought they'd won, Satan thought. They had won because Jesus died one of the most shameful deaths imaginable. But by the power of God, that shameful, horrific death becomes our source of life and hope. He he turns it on its head. And what you think is shameful or disgraceful or, or worthy of mourning or suffering and loss, at some point, Jesus will wipe the tears from your eyes and show you how new life has come through that. Just as he was raised from the dead, he will take the ashes of your life and your losses and your sin, and he will make something beautiful. What is God like? He loves the outcasts, and he makes them family. What is he up to? He's redeeming our stories, and he's making all things new again. This is the promise of Advent, and this is the the message of the story of Tamar, and this is the hope that we ground ourselves in week after week. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he said, my body was broken for you. Broken. This is not a metaphor about what happened to his body. It was broken. He was beaten beyond recognition. His blood was poured on the ground. His skin was ripped from his back for you. This is the body of Christ broken for you. And he says to his followers, eat this and remember what I've done for you. He knows your pain. He knows your suffering. After his meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, sealed the shedding of my blood. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. How can God love the unlovable? How can he draw the outcasts near? Because if the body of Christ was broken for you and the blood of Christ was shed for you, God looks at you and says, you're clean and you're beautiful. Not because of how you've cleaned up, not because of how you've gotten your life together, but because of what I have done for you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, um, I encourage you to journey through Advent with us and maybe see Christmas in a new light. Uh, See the love of God, uh, learn to find some peace with all of your sufferings, not in new circumstances, not in a, a new strategy or resolutions for the next year, but in Christ who loves you and pursues you. If you're a Christian, our tradition is to come forward or go in the back, there'll be stations in the back. You can rip off a piece of bread, dip it in the wine or juice. Uh, There'll be a piece of twine wrapped around the wine, and there'll be gluten-free elements next to our Christmas tree here. Uh, I'll pray for us, and then Christians, you can participate in communion as you're ready. Let's pray.